Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Modern Masculinity Podcast. My name is Hector Santia Esteban, and I'm your guide to this short time. And today's episode is with Mr. Christopher Veal, and he's the host of the Vulnerable Man Podcast and one of the first, if I believe, if not the first episode that we actually recorded for this show. And so it's such an important conversation because I think this idea of vulnerability is so critical for men today. So I'm not going to spoil any of the conversation. I'm going to get right into it. Guys, this is going to be a fantastic conversation that I know you're going to enjoy. This is Christopher Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santia Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Christopher, thanks for being on the Modern Masculinity Podcast, man. Thanks so much. Very glad to be here and looking forward to the conversation. What's interesting is you don't know this now, and maybe you could tell it, but you were actually one of the first people who I reached out to that I didn't know to come on the show. And when we were talking the first time, I was absolutely very nervous. I don't know why, but part of the reason was because I was like, this guy is already doing what I'm trying to do. He's already got the show. Why do I even need to start the show? We're already going to do it. But I know that it's a little different, but vulnerable. anyways, I wanted to really honor and affirm you for what you're doing because I believe in it so much. And I also believe we're in a world of abundance and that we're all here to serve the same purpose. I wanted to kick it off and start off with that. Yeah. Well, hold on. What I want to say to that too is thank you. And I'm excited to be here, but I know you're going to do something slightly different in the space too. And that's what I'm really celebrating because there's never going to be too many of these voices having these conversations. So know that I am here wildly cheering on what you're doing and what you're creating as well. I appreciate that. I appreciate that because it's a new space. I'll admit it's new to me. Even the idea of men's work, I'm like, oh, there's a word for it. It's like, (laughs) it's a thing, you know, men's group. I'm like, whoa, there's this, I was foreign to it. I was ignorant to the fact that there were already guys out there doing some of this work. And so we're going to get into it. But we always start off the interviews with what's going on with you? You know, we could talk about how great and amazing you are. And you've got the book and you've got the show and you almost approaching 100 episodes and all, you know, all these kinds of things. But what's real and present for you right now? That's such a big question, right? And here's what I think I will share. 2023, the word, I created a theme. Each year I create a theme for my year. And this year the word is unleashed. And really, you know what, I'm going to pull up because the definition that really stood out for me and it is cause a strong force to be released or become unrestrained is the way that I'm holding it. And I feel like that's part of what's going on with this type of work. I'm finding more and more men and women, and I know I'm speaking binary, so people that are embracing this conversation. Whereas a few years ago, if you started to talk about men's work, sometimes people thought, oh, so you're not for women or equality. And it's like, no, it's not that. And so that's, I think, something that I'm in the middle of. And it's almost like I don't surf, but I feel like I'm just about to hit the crest of that wave and really start to get some momentum. And by saying I, I mean we doing this work. So I don't know if I quite answer the question. If not, feel free to ask it again. Well, it's a great point because one of the things that I had simmered on this show for a long time, and I have a podcast about podcasting, which is probably pretty boring for most of the listeners out there. But I wanted to start a show about something that I was really passionate about and something that I would be excited to have conversations about. And as I saw 
more and more things really on social media, highlighting this world that I was so foreign to. You mentioned binary. We came up in a world where, you know, boys did certain things and girls did certain things. And that's not the right way. I didn't realize how quickly we had shifted into another world and I've got kids coming up. And so I'm like, there's got to be some way to, if nothing else, bring compassion to these conversations that otherwise just seem so vitriolic and pointing. It's like, a can't we all just get along kind of thing, which is a big part of this show too, is that we want to honor everything about the feminine and that this show is here to honor everything about the feminine and also honor everything about the masculine as well. Absolutely. I think part of what you're talking to is like, there's this divisiveness that's going on in our world. And you're right, I'm going to be 52 this year. So I have half a century of almost that whole time, what I heard was boys and girls. And now we know we're in a world beyond that. And you bring the masculine and feminine into it. I think that's an important part of the conversation that even five years ago, you weren't likely to hear men talking about. But what I know is we all have access to both masculine and feminine energy. And because I identify as male does not mean that I have exclusive domain and rights to those masculine energies. And that's what I'm really appreciating is that the conversation is expanding and people are going, okay, so how can we rethink the way we hold masculinity? Because what I know is that old model, it doesn't work. We need to shift things because our world isn't what it was 40 years ago. And so we can't use that same thinking to approach the problems we're facing now. That's exactly it. And a theme that's come up in a lot of the conversations that we've recorded so far is that we are not in our father's and our grandfather's world, not only with regards to gender, but you could expand that to parenting and to marriage right. and to work. Everything has shifted. And I keep saying it, the new handbook has not been written yet. There's no handbook. Right. People don't even know that there's a new, <laughs> that the rules have changed. And I think that if we are not intentional with it, we are going to be subject to not our own devices. What's interesting is that the name of the show is The Vulnerable Man. A few years ago, those two words would not have been associated or they would not have been associated positively in the sense that, you know, he's vulnerable. Now we're starting to move to a world where, and I heard someone say that perhaps they like the word transparent, and we're just, we're talking about semantics here, but in that same sense where there's more to masculinity than was previously established. Absolutely. So an important thing that I think you're pointing to here is the previous generation of men, they were operating off the examples that they saw. So also, like, I want to name that. I've been interviewing men even before I was thinking about the podcast. I started back in 2016, 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. And one of the common threads that I heard is a lot of men saying, I didn't see things like vulnerability from my dad. And it wasn't a criticism, but also recognizing that's not what their fathers had, for examples. And so to your point of it's shifting, the millennial generation, they're expecting more from how we're holding men and masculinity in a way that I didn't even know how to as a Gen Xer. And so as you're talking about this, even when I was first thinking about the podcast, I had some hesitation at first. Do I call it the vulnerable man? Because there are some men who will be triggered by that word. And what I realized is that's exactly why I need to do that. Because we need to normalize that men can say that, men can own it, because it's part of who we are. It's just that typically being brought up as boys, as young men, we're not encouraged. We're not shown how to do that. Or if it happens, especially around other men, we tend to make them wrong because of it. And so boys and young men start to go, oh, I can't do that because then that's not what it's like to be a man or be accepted by the guys. And so that's how we can continue to shift the narrative is show them those examples, make it normal to talk about men can be vulnerable, men can be with their emotions so that 
boys grow up seeing that and go, oh, that's what's expected of me. Not this narrow man box type of version of what masculinity used to be. Yeah, as you were saying that, one thing that emerges, I'm actually very proud of men. And I don't think that they get enough credit because growing up, I'm 31, so I'm a few years behind you, but I'd imagine that it was similar in the sense that the locker rooms, you know, growing up on teams were vile. And the way that we spoke about women, and perhaps it's still happening in those locker rooms with young kids today, but I at least know that I've had conversations with guys about like, oh, we can't and we shouldn't talk like that because it was not honor. It was not being compact. Like we would throw around the R word and they throw around, you know, just all these things. And so I think that men have made a change. I think that it points to the fact that we are capable of it and that now we're in the middle of this transition. What guidance could you give to someone who is coming up and realizing that they're not in their father's or grandfather's world anymore? Wow. That's how long have we got? (laughs) And I think the simple thing that I'll start with is If you're not seeing the examples of masculinity that you really want to be, then spend time with men that are doing that and that are bringing that. That's the first thing because we are so influenced, especially as adolescents and teenagers, we are so influenced by those peer groups. Look at who are the people you're spending time with. And if they're reinforcing some of those things that don't feel right to you, check in with yourself and go, okay, so if that doesn't feel right, where do I need to put attention? Sometimes it's having the courage to stand up and say, you know what, that thing you just said, it isn't appropriate. You know, you talked about locker rooms. I remember I played football, I played basketball growing up. And one of the common things you'd hear if somebody got hurt, suck it up, rub some dirt on it, all those type of things. And so the message that got conveyed is you can't show hurt or you can only do it for a short time, but you better get back in. And unless your leg or arm is falling off, you better push through it and suck it up. It's things like that that we have to look at and go, how is that really serving us? Now, there's value to being tough and mental toughness and physical toughness. And there's also a lot of strength in saying, you know what, I'm hurting, I need help, or I can't do it all. And that's some of the things that we need to start really just holding up the mirror and saying, that story, that narrative doesn't work anymore, let's change it. Two things I'd like to pull on, and hopefully you can bring us back if we don't get there. But the first was the need to know and understand their emotions. I've had, actually, this wasn't this wasn't a man, this wasn't a guy say this to me recently, but they said, I don't know how to work with my feelings. And I was like, that's, that's me. They taught us how to drive a car. They told us what all the buttons were and where everything was. And there was even a manual in the glove box that if you really wanted to, you can go and look, but they didn't tell you how to kind of work with this. There was no operating system, especially for guys, because guys aren't supposed to have emotions. So now we're here. Right. And that's even part of the problem that we need to go back and start adjusting those messages. So I love to use the example. If you look at a boy and a girl aged three or four years old, and we treat them largely the same. If they fall down and hurt themselves, like we're going to nurture them and reinforce that it's okay. And then when they hit about five or six, maybe seven years old, that boy and that girl start getting very different messages. Little girl hurts herself or gets hurt. We continue to nurture. Little boy starts hearing message like, hey, toughen up suck it up, all that stuff that I said I heard in the locker room. And so the message that that little boy unconsciously gets and sometimes very consciously gets is, oh, I can't show these emotions. I can show anger. I can maybe show a little bit of sadness, but not for long. And that's it. And so we unintentionally tell them like the emotions you can have, even though you've got all these, you actually can only get to experience these and only for a little bit. And there's only certain ways you can do it. It's like putting a lid on a pressure cooker and continuing to turn up the pressure and then wondering why it blows up one day. So how do we help them normalize and teach them how to be with emotions? Right. I think that it's starting to happen because they have these really cute 
kids books like labeling emotions and it's like i learned that when i was 30 right. about <laughs> labeling emotions i'm grateful that my son is getting that at 3 we're still working through it but now the light switch has been turned on in the room they may still have to navigate it but at least they know and they kind of know what they're looking for yeah if you're looking for another book real quick the whole brained child and I can't remember the author's name, but that one, that was amazing. And I read it when my daughter was young and it helped me learn how to be with her emotions in a way where my programming might've been like, oh, no, no, I, we can't do that. So there's another one for you. Yeah. This asking for help thing is big because mm -hmm. I always thought maybe it was a personal thing, but talk about that because I don't think that that's even in people's awareness that that might be a blind spot that they have. Absolutely. And I'll speak to here in North America because that's where I live, but there's very much this culture of for men, you don't ask for help. And when you think back to when the country was being settled and this pioneer mentality, like you had to tough it out and be able to endure and it's carried through. You look at some of the stories, the action heroes that we see on the screen, and they're usually these big hypermuscular men who never need to ask for help. Even though they have these insurmountable odds, they find a way to push through it. And again, the message that gets taught is, okay, if you want to be a man, if you want to be successful, you can't ask for help. You've just got to overcome and win at all costs. And what I'm a believer in is we need to let go of this either or mentality around masculinity and shift it to a both. Perfect examples, we're talking about parenting. When my daughter was born, I had to work to get paternity leave from my employer. Now, they had to comply with the law, but like I had to educate them. And what it was is I caught a lot of grief from some of my coworkers. I was in a construction job at the time. And a lot of these men, older men, had this mindset. Like I had comments like, what are you doing? You know, raising kids is women's work. And so we need to get rid of this mindset of either a man can be a breadwinner or a caregiver and say, what is it like to be a breadwinner and a caregiver? Or how can I be strong and ask for help when I need it? Again, I come back to the examples that we are showing people and that we're highlighting. And if they start to see more examples of men asking for help and not being torn down because of it, then that's going to start to shift the narrative and have people go, oh, it's okay if I ask for help because I saw that person do it. Yeah, there's so much there because there's the asking for help and need to do it on their own. But there's also the fact that men are being thrown into roles that we had no models for. My wife, she recently got a new job and she's traveling a lot more. And so we were hanging out with some friends and a good buddy was like, oh, so you're playing Mr. Mom now. It's like, it like a jab, right? And I was like, well, yes, I am. Yeah. Actually, I'm being a dad is what I'm being. Thank you very much. That's what I should have said in the moment. I didn't have that. Yeah, that's all right. That's for next time. But so there's that. And there's that whole thing, which we can come back to. But my dad, he never parented. He never, it was never a caregiver. And so I'm just doing it on the fly. And that's why thankfully there's some books, but even a lot of parenting books are written by women, you know, which is great. And they have the experience, but not all of them capture that perspective either. No. So there's a man, I got a name drop, Josh Levs, who's done a ton of work around this. He wrote a book called All In, and he talked about and did a lot of research about how there are a lot of men that really want to be involved in parenting and childcare. And a lot of our systems and structures don't support it. So it's kind of a dual evil that's happening with it. First of all, men, it wasn't as expected as what I'll say. You know, I think back even to my parents' generation, you're right. Most of the expectation was mothers did the caretaking. Now that got turned on its head because I was raised by a single mother, but that's another story. So even as I was becoming a father, I knew I wanted to be very involved. I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't have an instruction manual. When I get one, I'm going to write that book and then I'm going to be lying on a beach in the Bahamas somewhere. But the other thing is I've even talked to men. So I also used to volunteer for a program called Boot Camp for New Dads, which was phenomenal in helping me prepare to become a dad. 
but there were a lot of guys that I would talk to that had kids already. So we would bring in guys with their babies and some of them would talk about how they would encounter gatekeeping sometimes where the mothers actually wouldn't let the dads do things because there's this belief they had and not necessarily that they'd created, but had been passed on to them that, oh, dads don't do childcare. Like that's a mom's job and you've got to be perfect at it. Not only was there not that expectation, but then became the resentment because, well, why isn't he doing more? Well, because society, other frameworks are teaching him or telling him that's not what he's supposed to do. Now, when you throw him into it and you expect him to be perfect at it, he's never done this before. How can we win? So we're all trying to find our way through it. And I think it needs to be continual conversations. And really, as parents talking about how do we want to parent together? Because I say human race hasn't survived this long because moms know everything. And that's not a knock on mothers at all. But dads have an important part to contribute. And they're wanting to step up in a more powerful way. And I think you're getting to see more of that now. Yeah. I want to talk more about this because the shift is happening. And we could talk a lot about the divisiveness that's happening. But I also think that divisiveness can only happen if there's someone on the other side of it. If there's someone actually saying, well, here's the way forward. Christopher, I want to talk about what that way forward is. And we're going to get into that right after this break. All right. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in today. This is just a very quick announcement about something that we are doing over at Amplify Media. And if you guys have a message, a mission, a book, something that you want to get out to the world, but you don't know how to do it, podcasts can really help you. And that's what we've done for thought leaders, subject matter experts, coaches, people who have something that they want to bring to the world and just don't have the time or the tech skills to do it. So if you want to find out about that, go to AmplifyMedia.com, A-M-P-L-A-F-Y, Media.com, and you'll find all of that info in the show notes. Thanks as always for sitting through this and let's get back to the interview. Christopher, we talked about before kind of this divisiveness, but we also talked about that there's a beacon of hope. I was doing my research on on manly podcasts <laughs> and I saw yours and I said, that's the one. I got to oh, talk to that guy. Fell into the manly podcast? I didn't even know that. Cool. Well, well as has been, kind of been unearthed is that there's this expanded definition of masculinity. That masculinity is actually not what we thought it was before, but it actually encompasses something else that we weren't getting, we weren't taking into account this other aspect of it. What do you think that is? And perhaps we can guess the answer based on the show, but like, what do you (laughs) think is the next evolution of masculinity, if you will? Yes. I love that you use the word evolution because in my book, I purposefully chose the word evolving masculinity. And it was because if you look at our world, organisms evolve to not just survive, but also to thrive. And what that means to me is with masculinity, it isn't about throwing away everything it means to be masculine or to be a man. I think there are some good qualities and there's also some negative things. So how do we keep what we still need and then acquire new skills or new ways of being masculine or defining it in a way that will serve us going forward? And so that's where... I think we really need to focus. And that's where I come back to this idea of like expanding how we hold masculinity. Normally, masculinity is, it's narrowing in its definition. You know, if you don't do these certain things, if you don't fit into this box, you're not a man, whatever that means. And what we're learning now, as we've alluded to, times have changed. And so the way we hold what it means to be a man is very different. I was talking to a guy recently and he's like, I don't, change the oil in my car. I don't know how to tear an engine apart. Does that make me any less of a man than someone else? And I was like, no, but 
if we look at traditionally the way we define it, there's certain things that men do. And if you don't do it, you're less than. And that's where I'm saying we've got to blow that up and start to talk about how are all the ways we can be a man. You don't have to be that alpha male, type A, win at everything, conquer everything just to be a man. There's lots on the spectrum. And so it's broadening the way we hold it. I think that's the key piece to start with. And then we build from there. Yeah. I've been hesitant to even share this, but I'll share this with you because I feel like we're in a safe space and only the listeners will hear it. <laughs> um, but growing up, my dad, and I can't even say it, my dad, because a lot of dads would say, boys play with this toy and girls play with this toy. My house, there was no Barbies allowed. I had another brother and it was unheard of. My challenge though, is as I'm thinking about my four-year-old boy who, you know, I have a four-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. My three-year-old girl loves Barbies and my four-year-old likes to play with them too. And I can imagine that scenario where if I would take that Barbie away from him and I were to say only girls like to play with Barbies, well then in his head, he would go, well, dang dad, I'm not a boy then. I want Barbies. I like, like, so if you're saying that, then I must not be the boy or conversely girls wear dresses or whatever, the whole thing. But if we place people into these boxes that they don't fit into, well, I'm not surprised that 20 years later, we all grew up and we're like, <laughs> no, we don't want to be in your boxes. Right. Right. Well, part of what happens too is it starts with us as those older men to look at what are the stories, but I like to say the programming that's running under the radar for us and check that. So you already are going, oh, wait a minute. I noticed my son is playing with Barbies and checking yourself before you go, nope, don't do that. Now, here's the really ironic thing. Boys play with dolls. They just put GI Joe on them and it's okay. Or He-Man, but it's a doll. Let's be real. So if you package it right, it's okay. But what I want to point to here is if we normalize and just say, let kids play without assigning gender to certain things, what's the harm in that? And I think what happens is a lot of men that are stuck in some of these older ways we hold it, they're afraid of that. If I let my boy play with a doll, what does that mean? Like he's gay, he's whatever, like find whatever word you want to that is not even remotely real. So that causes them to go into fear. And part of what you do is be able to address that fear that comes up. If we want to reshape that we hold masculinity, it doesn't mean we're throwing about the way that you think about it. I'm not saying you have to change the way you hold it, but by the same token, don't force others to subscribe to the, your point of view. Allow us to have our view. And if it's slightly different than yours, okay. Is it harming you? Is it causing you grief? Probably not. So just let it go. Right. Yeah. Like get over yourself. You ain't that important. Hate to tell you. Yeah. Another thing that comes up, and I know you've dealt with this on your show, is the classic traditional example of a man or a dad or whatever. And you have these extremes. You have the Dwayne Rock Johnson. I actually like really like The Rock. I think he's a bad example. But that kind of guy, the big tough, the Rambo, the Sylvester Stallone, you know, that kind of thing. And then somehow we ended up at like an Al Bundy, Tim Allen, Homer Simpson family guy. And so it's like there's these two extremes where if you're not a hulking guy or the only other option is to be Ray Romano, which, you know, he's fun. And there's nothing against this. It's just, I don't know that they position men in a exemplary way or as an example, right? I could list dozens of examples of TV dads that fall into those extremes. Like either the bumbling idiot, we're surprised the kids survived, but we know dad loves them. Or, you know, the overly assertive controlling type of dad. It's very rare. And it's starting to shift where you see dads that can be there, can be emotionally available for their kids, can be examples of what we want masculinity to be without them being the comic relief. 
And again, it comes back to the messing we're hearing. So I grew up, you know, I was born in the 70s. A lot of the shows that I watched, like I think of the TV dads that I saw. And they were those goofy, kind of awkward dads. If everyone sees these messages of dads not really being involved or being checked out or being, you know, not good at being dads, then that's the expectation we're going to have. So how can you be mad at the dad, new dad, who is acting like Al Bundy or Homer Simpson or something like that, if that's the only examples they saw? So we also have to come back to and go, what are we showing people? What are the expectations that we're creating? And if you're expecting something different than what they've been taught, you're setting them up for failure. Yeah. We focus a lot on fatherhood and I think naturally, but I think that the same thing could probably be said about marriage and relationships. Because I think about the marriage that those shows or that typical media kind of portrays. And it's either you're a womanizing kind of James Bond-esque type thing, or you're this Al Bundy who's depressed and unhappy with his marriage. And once again, no, no positive examples. Right. It's often casting, and I'm going to say some broad generalizations. There's probably going to be like, no, I can give you these two examples where it doesn't. So this is not every example, but a lot of times it doesn't portray men in that way where they have ability to be with their emotions. Another thing that I think is a problem is there's a lot of stigma for men around mental health. Growing up, when I was in my 20s or 30s, if someone said, hey, Christopher, would you think about therapy? I'd probably want to punch him in the face. I'd be like, no, there's nothing wrong with me, even though I might be just dying inside. And I see that is starting to shift as well, and more men are talking about it. But growing up, I don't know that I could name two men, let alone one man, that said, oh, I've been to therapy. They might have gone to therapy for counseling with their spouse. But, you know, so it's, again, we need to show examples of men behaving in the way that we want them to, that we expect them to, and that we need them to. So Christopher, let's transition a little bit to the book here, because the book is called The Whole Man, and the show is called The Vulnerable Man. Someone might look at that and go, that doesn't add up. Those don't, (laughs) those can't be, one can't be the other. So how do you reconcile those two concepts or two ideas? Right. Well, at its core, The Whole Man is about being vulnerable. And the book's called The Whole Man, I think it applies to all people. We all have this ability and desire to be vulnerable, but I think we are not always given permission to do it. And so the reason I came with the idea of the whole man is the book looks at what holds us in unhealthy masculinity in the 21st century. And also what keeps us from feeling safe in embracing greater vulnerability in our lives. And I do that by looking at some of the outdated views and constructs around being a man that keep us closed off from our emotions. So vulnerability, I think, is hand in hand with that idea of emotions. And what I talk about in it is if we as men can start to recognize and learn to be with greater vulnerability, that's the key to connection. Whether it's in a romantic relationship, professional relationships, vulnerabilities help me become a better father. And so what I say in the book and what I've come to realize is vulnerability is my superpower. And when I lean into it, that is what transforms things and helps me really show up in the way that I want to. Was it always like that? Were you always vulnerable or was there a time where you were? No. (laughs) Listen, I spent nine years as an officer in the Marine Corps and six and a half years in construction. Believe me, those are not two spaces where guys talk about being vulnerable, right? No, they're not. (laughs) Right. And that's part of what brought me to the idea of the whole man because I knew that I was only bringing a part of myself in those spaces. There were only certain ways that I felt like I could safely show up while I was successful in those areas. I also realized part of me is missing. As I was thinking about the book, I realized, how do I let all of myself show up? First of all, give myself permission to be like that. 
which is separate from how others are willing to accept me. And that's a whole nother conversation we could talk about. But that's really what had me step there. So the short answer is no. Even 15 years ago, there's no way I would have thought about talking about vulnerability. That's part of why I'm doing this now is because I want to be one of the voices, the many voices that are helping men realize you can do this. People go, wait a minute, this guy's a Marine, a combat veteran, and he can be vulnerable. Well, maybe that gives me a little bit of permission that I might be willing to. Even if I help one man shift his thinking a little bit, job done. Permission is really what it is because it's like everybody in the locker room is looking around and like, all right, what's okay to do in here? And so if everybody is compassionate and vulnerable, you know, and you're standing on the outside, I think that's a place where we can hope to get to. Yeah. Well, the irony is I think so many of those boys and men in the locker room, they want more connection, but they're afraid to be the one to go first because if it's not well received, then I now get ostracized and I'm on the out group and I want to be on the in group. How do you navigate that? Because you came from some very, you know, quote unquote, manly (laughs) industry, manly spaces. So did you ever experience any pushback or any blowback from, you know, this vulnerability thing? Absolutely. I mean, there's some men that, you know, even if I say the word vulnerable, like they shut down. I don't know that I've ever gotten violent responses back, but I've had men that I can tell like just will be done with communicating with me. And at first it actually caused me to pull back a little until I realized. And so this has been a lot of work that I've been doing personally over the years. And what I've come to understand is it's not about how it's received. My relationship with vulnerability is about me. And if it lands for you, great. If it doesn't, great, because you may not be at the same place as I am. And that's okay. But it shouldn't stop me from leaning into greater vulnerability. So I do a lot of training. And sometimes I've had men, when I talk, I openly talk about vulnerability now. It used to be a four-letter word to me, but it's not anymore. And I've had men private message me saying, thank you for saying that. I've been feeling something similar. So what I know is the desire for more of it's there, and some of them don't quite feel safe to show it more. And that's why I keep showing up and doing this, because I know more and more men will start to see these examples. And again, we'll start to shift the needle on how do men expect to show up so that when there's guys that aren't demonstrating the emotional intelligence, the emotional awareness, the vulnerability. They're going to be like, what's wrong with you? Look at what everyone else is doing. And that's the world I'm dreaming into. Yeah. I was at a front row dad's retreat in early December, and there was a exercise where it was just a sharing exercise. And it was a pretty deep sharing. But what's interesting is the act of sharing was such a powerful, not only load off of your shoulders, but then the connection that it creates by seeing other men and realizing that we're not as alone as we think we are. Yeah. I'll tell you, one of the most important roles in that type of space is the people that are receiving. It takes great courage for that person to share. And when they feel held in the space and they know, okay, I'm not being judged for it, that's the secret ingredient. So honestly, what I'll say is like all of you that were listening, you were possibly as important, if not more important to it, because as people shared, they felt more safe. And what I'm willing to bet is the shares got a little deeper or richer as time went on, or at least some men that probably wouldn't have shared were like, okay, I think I can. And that psychological safety is key. Yeah. And I think men don't get that enough because we come up in locker rooms and tribes and we have our teams, but then all of a sudden we're thrown into adulthood or whatever, and we don't have that team anymore. I know I got married and had kids right afterwards and then the pandemic. And so we were really bunkered down. And it was always kind of a funny joke that like, oh, Hector doesn't have a lot of friends. But then I was like, 
well, I'm an introvert and I work on podcasts. There were a lot of excuses and reasons that I could not have a lot of friends. But I also was looking at the detriment that it was having to my mental health. And I knew that there was something missing. And when I found this dad group, it was like, okay, that's what you were missing was this ability to share and have a space held for you. Because we hold so much space at home for everything. And we're always playing fixer at home. But to have someone hold that for you. And what you're pointing to as well is we are expected to be in that fixer role so often, whether it's external expectations or us on ourselves, that we sometimes forget it's okay to stop and have someone help us. And again, that's key. I was reminded of that lesson really importantly when my mother was diagnosed with cancer and I burned myself out trying to fly back to where she was to because I was an only child. So being there to support her, but being back at home to support my wife and daughter and keep the job that I have because I was the breadwinner. Absolutely. And it was a while after all that happened that I learned, oh, I've burned myself out. I need to ask for help and lean into people because I'm so good at asking people, what can I do to help you? But it doesn't occur to me to say, oh, and I can do the same thing and they won't shut me down for it. It's like, yeah, how about that, Christopher? Clue phone, it's for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This receiving and allowing has been... <laughs> A big, a big thing. Like there's even times where my mom will come and say, I'll pick up the kids. And it's like, uh, I no, I don't want, you know, I feel bad for the help. There's some weirdness about receiving that gets in the way of the receipt, you know? So here's my advice to you. Just say yes and thank you and enjoy it. Seriously. Yeah. And it takes practice. It's uncomfortable at first. And you'll start to realize like, the way somebody helped me really change the way I looked at it is they said, do you enjoy helping people? I said, yes, I feel honored that I get to help support others. So don't you think that they feel the same way when they get to help you? And I was just like, oh man, you just beat me down with my own words. And it's true. It is a gift we get to give them when they get to help us. So why wouldn't I do that? And people always get to say no, right? If I ask for help, they can say no. Okay, cool. Right. <laughs> what were you right. about to ask? No, I, that's a fantastic point. We feel like we're going to be a burden by asking. Cool. I have had friends say, hey, Christopher, can you help me with this? And sometimes I say, no, I can't because of this. It doesn't mean I don't want to. It doesn't ruin our friendship. They haven't disowned me. And there's times that I say yes. So again, we usually don't ask for help because we're worried about being a burden. I'm like, get rid of that stuff. Do you have any tactics or I could liken it to a fire drill, right? When a fire drill happens, everybody knows what to do. And here's the protocol to get out of there safely. And I think that I find myself trying to build in these protocols when I feel myself getting angry or feel myself getting out of alignment. Are there any things that you find yourself coming back to or habits or rituals or practices that keep you centered when things go off? Where I start with is I take a breath. I pause especially if I start to feel like I'm not being my best self in the moment, I just take a pause and go, wait a minute, how do I want to show up in this moment? Sometimes that helps. I have a little cheat code that I used, a rule that somebody taught me, and I call it the rule of tens, is whatever I'm getting upset about right now, is it going to bother me in 10 minutes? Okay, if the answer is yes, how about 10 hours? All right, if it, a yes in 10 hours, how about 10 days? It's rare that I get to 10 days that this thing that's bothering me might not always bother me. If I get to 10 days, I'll go to 10 weeks. I don't think I've ever gotten to 10 weeks. And what that does is that helps me kind of just check in and go, wait a minute. So how much time and energy do I want to invest in it right now if I know that 10 days from now, it's not going to be causing me to wake up in the middle of the night? And so that is a way that I normalize sometimes when I'm feeling myself triggered. And the other thing is I really lean into using I language. So the old Christopher might have gotten defensive and started accusing somebody or pointing fingers. And what I name now is I say, here's how I'm feeling in the moment. 
and just saying it, not in a way that it's you made me feel this way, but here's how I am feeling. Now, somebody can't come back and say, no, you're not. You can't tell me how I'm feeling. But even just saying that helps me own it and claim it and helps them see what's going on for me. And then I don't have an expectation of them fixing it, but it allows us to be in dialogue and focus on the thing instead of making it personal and attacking each other. So I think those are probably some of the go-tos that I have. Yeah. I love that 10, 10, 10 thing. Cause there's so many times I find myself and I'm like, I want to get over this. <laughs> yep. I want to let it go, but I can't find the perspective to do that. And that's it. That's it right there is the 10, 10, 10. And I always say, if nothing else, walk away from the conversation, say, you know what? I, I'm not my best self right now. I need to come back to this conversation before I say something I really don't mean or that I will regret. And I've yet to have somebody say, no, you need to stay here. Like if they do, then honestly, I will walk away. I'd rather they be mad at me for walking away than me saying something in a moment that I really didn't mean that could do even more damage to that relationship. Yeah. You've talked a lot about like space and the need creating that. And it's huge. The show is The Vulnerable Man. The book is The Whole Man. I want you to talk a little bit about that where people can find that. But my last question for you is, Christopher, what does modern masculinity mean to you? Just that, huh? Here's, and I know you told me you were going to ask me that question. I think here's what I would boil it down to. It is both and, and it is expansive. And what that means is we are willing to let go of the expectations of what we used to believe masculinity was and be open to what it can be and what we need it to be in order to serve us and address the challenge that we're facing. So it's both and, and it's expansive. Yeah, it's what it was, and it's also something else and something new. It's evolving and be a part of the evolution in a healthy way. Right. Christopher, where can people go and get connected with you or go and dive deeper down your rabbit hole? Sure. The first place I point people is wholemanjourney.com. That's the book site, and you can go there and find ways to access it. You can find it on Amazon and lots of other places too. But wholemanjourney.com, check out The Vulnerable Man. It's vulnerable-man.com, or if you search in any of your podcast engines, Vulnerable Man, it'll come up. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. And I say, you'll know the right me. I used to have Vulnerability Vanguard in there. I've shifted it, but you'll see me a lot in the space talking about masculinity, and that's the right one. Yeah, those are the easiest ways to get hold of me. Cool. Guys, go get the book. Subscribe to the show. Get connected with Christopher, and we appreciate you being here. We'll see you on the next one. Later, y'all. If iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. But if you're a man and you're alone or listening to this, then who sharpens you? What's going on, guys? Ted Faden here, host of the Modern Man Podcast, also founder of the Noble Knights Mastermind Group. And I'm just out here encouraging you to find your circle. Maybe you're on a personal growth journey and nobody around you understands the new mentality that you're possessing. That's okay. You can find an online community that will pour into you, will navigate your goals and navigate your obstacles, share their experiences, resources, and more. Join the Noble Knights Mastermind Group and try us out for free to tap into a community of men helping each other scale up and reach their goals. Check out themodernmanpodcast.com.